Let's continue to worship him as we read the word of God. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. If you need a pew Bible, it's there in front of you. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Solomon, and Solomon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asap, and Asap, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconaniah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Elikim, and Elikim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14, generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so thankful as your people that you are a God who rules over history. You are so great and so large and in charge that these generations, you rule over them all. And yet, God, we thank you that you're a God who is small enough to care and bear our burdens down to our very names. You care about all of creation. You care about each individual. And so, Father, I pray that we would listen to what you have to say to us, that we would see in this passage, the mission that you have for your son, 
who has come and is coming again, and the mission and the meaning it has for our own lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, now aren't you glad that you were not called upon to read today's scripture passage? And tried to pronounce all those names, so uh, give it up for Pastor Chris. I uh, intentionally asked him to read today's passage, so I would not have to. So, uh, no, in all, in all seriousness, I do thank you for that. And uh, there's a reason why Matthew begins his gospel with a genealogy of all these hard-to-pronounce names. We'll, we'll get to that here in a moment, uh, but I first want to say we're just beginning a Christmas series here in the month of December, uh, a five-week series that we're calling A Manger with a Mission, in which we're going to cover Matthews 1, 2, and 3, or chapters 1, 2, and 3. And, and you might even call this passage, this chapter, verses 1 through 17, the forgotten chapter of the Christmas story, and for pretty good reason. It begins with a genealogy, a list of names that are hard to pronounce. Now, most of us here this morning, we're not really into genealogies, especially not someone else's genealogy. But some people are. Perhaps you are even here. In fact, um, like some people, maybe you have gone to websites, maybe you have even paid money to discover who is in your family tree. The rest of us here are too afraid of what we might find, so we just ignore it altogether. Uh, and perhaps uh, you going home for Thanksgiving even verified that, it validated that you really don't want to find out who's in your family tree. But why begin the story of Jesus with a genealogy? It's a little odd, to say the least. I mean, of all the ways to start a book, this, this isn't really one of them. Because after all, any good author knows that you need to grab the reader's attention immediately when you open to a book. For instance, here's how J.R. Tolkien starts The Hobbit. In a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. Only ten words, and already you're hooked. Your curiosity is getting the best of you, at least for some of you. Most people can quote the first part of the opening line of Charles Dickens' book, A Tale of Two Cities. It was the worst of times, and it was the best of times. But notice how Matthew starts his book. Here in chapter 1, verse 1, he says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And again, that's a little odd to us here in our culture. We think it's odd for Matthew to start off his, his gospel with a genealogy. But as I said at the very beginning, there is a reason to this. There is a purpose behind what Matthew is doing here. So why start with a genealogy? Notice this in your notes coming up on the screen behind me. It's because Matthew wants to establish something right off the start, right from the beginning. He wants to establish that Jesus is the legitimate sovereign king who was promised by God Almighty. This book of Matthew's, this gospel of his, it has a Jewish foundation, and it also has a global mission to it. And so from the very beginning, Matthew makes clear that Jesus is the sovereign king. Now, genealogies were, 
were pretty important to the Jewish people in Jesus' day, especially since they were waiting for the promised Messiah to be their king. You see, one could not just simply claim to be a king without a pedigree to prove it. For a king to ascend to a throne, he must have a royal lineage. Uh, he must have royal blood. So in the opening chapter here, the royal claims of Jesus Christ are established by his genealogy. In descending order, Matthew traces the lineage of Jesus from Abraham. Matthew shows us that Jesus came not simply from Adam, but more specifically from the line of kings in Israel. He is the long-awaited promised king, and he is here. At the same time, we need to understand that Matthew is not giving us a, a comprehensive genealogy. That is not every descendant in Jesus' family tree is included in this genealogy. Matthew is being selective here, which is not uncommon in genealogies in those days. And Matthew is being selective in order to make a point to his readers. And that is Jesus was born to be the sovereign king. He was born to be the sovereign king. You see, Matthew wrote this genealogy to do more than just prove something. He also wants to teach us something. And although this genealogy may seem a bit boring to us at first glance, under this Christmas family tree, there are some wonderful, wonderful gifts for us to unwrap here this morning. And so let us consider this genealogy of Jesus Christ and let us discover what it teaches us about our God, what it teaches us about the birth of his son into this world by answering three questions about this genealogy. And the first question is this, what significance does it have? What relevance does this genealogy have for my life today? What significance does the genealogy of Jesus Christ have today? Now, as I already said, genealogies were pretty important to the Jews in Jesus' day. In fact, to them, a genealogy would have been an essential setting for the story of Jesus' birth. The Jews routinely paid close attention to questions of genealogy. For instance, genealogies were crucial in determining the priesthood in the Old Testament. Old Testament law specified that priests must come from the tribe of Levi. Genealogies were also used to prove tribal memberships, to decide inheritance rights, and to organize censuses. This is why you go over to Luke's gospel, and there in chapter 2, verse 3, it says, everyone went to his own town to do what? To register. And so Joseph, the adopted, the legal father of Jesus Christ here, he traced his heritage from David to his, and his family, and it was to the town of Bethlehem, the city of David. In fact, there are over 50 genealogies listed in the Old Testament alone. And when Jesus was born, genealogies were still considered official records, legal documents used to establish one's identity. Now, you may be thinking, well, that's nice, Bruce. I appreciate that. But, but again, what significance does it have for me today? What relevance does this have for us here today? And here's the significance of it all. I can state it in one simple sentence. When God makes a promise, you can be sure God will keep 
his promises. God is a promise maker, and God is a promise keeper. And what we see in this genealogy is that God is fulfilling his promises to his people. Notice this, first of all, Jesus comes, or he came, from the light, right line of Abraham and David. In other words, Jesus is from the right bloodline. When he writes in verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so Matthew's doing something here. He's doing something intentionally, and that is he is connecting Jesus to Abraham ethnically, and more important, he's connecting Jesus to David legally. Why? Because he wants us to show something, or he wants to show us something. He wants us to see that Jesus was born. He's the legitimate king of kings. He was born to be the sovereign king who was promised by God in the Old Testament. Now, obviously, Abraham and David are two names we are familiar with. In fact, those are two key names in this genealogy. And if you miss seeing them at the beginning and and the end, you miss everything here. Uh, Now, what's so important about these two names? Well, two promises, that's what's important. Two promises were made by God to these two people in particular in the Old Testament. God gave each a specific promise that looked like those promises had been forgotten. It looked like those promises had been long forgotten, lost forever. But God keeps his promises, and he does so now in the birth of his son, Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises that were made many years prior to Abraham and David. And so what did God promise Abraham? What did God promise to David? Well, God promised Abraham that all the nations in the world would be blessed through his seed. God tells Abraham in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 18, he says, through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. Now, in one sense, the son, that son was Isaac who himself was a miracle child. And we don't have time to get into the story of that. And yet Paul tells us that this promise was really fulfilled in Jesus Christ when Paul writes in Galatians 3.16, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say in two seeds, meaning many people, but into your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. And so Jesus is the one who ultimately fulfills this promise to be a blessing to all the nations of the world. And so God made that promise to Abraham, and now Matthew is showing us here in this genealogy right from the beginning that Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise that God made. God makes a promise, God keeps a promise. God is a promise keeper. Bank on it. Bank your life on that. What promise did God make to David? And that is, he promised David that one of his sons would rule as king and establish his kingdom forever. You can find this promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, where it says, When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, 
I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, again, in one sense, this promised son was Solomon. But he turned away from God. Solomon did not sit on the throne of David forever. And so now Jesus is David's greater son who fulfills this promise. That's why the angel tells Mary, again, in Luke chapter 1, verse 32, he says, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Do you see what Matthew is showing us here? Do you see what he's telling us in this genealogy? He's telling us that Jesus is the fulfillment of two thousand years of God's promises to a people who for generations had been waiting and longing for Messiah from the line of King David. Matthew is not just giving a list of names in this genealogy. Listen, he is announcing the arrival of the promised king. And so Jesus is from the right line. He has the right pedigree. He has the royal blood. That's important and necessary. But notice, number two, Jesus also came not just from the right line. He came at the right time in human history. Matthew wants to make sure we see this as well. And so he not only writes in the beginning here in chapter 1, in verse 1, but you drop down to the, all the way to the end of the genealogy in verse 17. And these two promises, these two things that we see, they bookend the genealogy. It's at the top and the bottom. And notice what it says in verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David. And so it's interesting that Abraham and David are now mentioned again. Matthew begins with the names Abraham and David in verse 1. He now concludes and ends the genealogy with those two names as well. And he says, from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And Matthew is showing us here, he's telling us that there are basically three key periods thus far in the history of salvation. What Matthew is telling us by these these 14 generations, he's breaking it up into three groups of 14 generations, and he's showing us these three key periods in in Israel's history, in salvation history. And the first period is a thousand years from Abraham to David that began in darkness and it ended in light. The second period is the 400 years from David to Babylon, which began with light but ended in the darkness of the Israelites' exile into Babylon. The last period is the 600 years from the return of God's people uh, from Babylon back to their homeland, Israel, to the birth of Jesus Christ, going once again from darkness to light. And these three sets of 14 generations now are basically record for us in a very condensed fashion the history of God's people, the Israelites, all of which point to one person because all of Israel's history is leading you to one person, and that is Jesus Christ. He is our Savior, and he's our King, and Matthew's telling us he's here. He has arrived. He is born to be our King. 
Matthew is making the same point Paul made. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, when Paul says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. In other words, there's a reason why Jesus didn't come in the first period of Israel's history. There's a reason why he didn't come in the second period or the third period or any other time frame in history. Jesus came at the right time when God wanted him to. In other words, Jesus came at the right time in human history according to God's redemptive plan, which means Christmas is now the center of history. Have you ever wondered why Jesus didn't come in the modern age rather than in the first century? I mean, why wasn't Jesus born during the era of TV a hundred years ago or, or even the era of the Internet 30 years ago? Social media here in the last 20 years when all that he said and did could be captured on video and sent all around the world. That, that would make more sense, perhaps, to you and I. But that's not what God planned. That's not what he decreed. It's not what happened. I think sometimes we wish God's timing were a little different than our timing, that, but that would take out the faith part of our faith. Because when Scripture says that Jesus came at the fullness of time, it means that Jesus came at the right time according to God's perfect plan. God is a promise maker. God is a promise keeper. And God fulfills those promises according to his divine timing in human history and in our lives as well. And so let's answer the second question. Who is included in the genealogy of Jesus Christ? I mean, what types of people are hanging from Jesus' family tree here? As we look at Jesus' family tree, I see three types of people hanging from the branches. You have the faithful, you have the failures, and you have the forgotten. And so the first type of people included is God includes the faithful in Jesus Christ's genealogy. In fact, there are at least ten names in this genealogy that kind of stand out for their faithfulness to God Almighty. Uh, the first of which is Abraham. Many of you are familiar with Abraham. And we are told in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17, it says, By faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. And so Abraham was faithful to God. When he called him, Abraham obeyed. He went. That doesn't mean Abraham was perfect in all of his obedience. No, but he was faithful to God. We see Isaac is another name. Hebrews 11.20 says, By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. And how about Jacob himself? Even though he was a deceiver, Hebrews 11.21 says, By faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. And then you have Ruth. The story of Ruth, you go to the Old Testament and you can read her story of those four chapters in the book of Ruth. And it says in Ruth chapter 1 verse 16 that she declared her commitment to her mother-in-law. She says, where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. That's Ruth. And then, of course, we have David himself. 1 Samuel chapter 13 verse 14 says, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And that was David, Solomon, his son. 1 Kings 13, 12 says, I will do what you have asked. 
I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. We have King Asa, another name here in this list who was faithful to God. 1 Kings 15.11 says, Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father David had done. Jehoshaphat, another king in Israel. In 2 Chronicles 17.3, it says the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because in his early years he walked in the ways of his father David had followed. Josiah, a phenomenal king in Israel's history. And we're told in 2 Kings 23.25, it says neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did. With all his heart and with all his soul and with all his strength in accordance with all the law of Moses. And then you have King Hezekiah where we are told in 2 Kings 18.5, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. Here's the point. God has always searched for faithful people to do his work. We were told this in 2 Chronicles 16.9. It says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. Listen, God loves to use faithful people, but if you look close enough, you will see that none of these people here were perfect. They all had flaws. In fact, they were greatly flawed. Some of you, when I listed these names and read these names, you, can, you know of their flaws. Abraham, even though he was faithful, he, he, he was greatly flawed as well. He lied twice about his wife. Isaac did the same. Jacob, as I already said, he was this deceiver. David, who doesn't know? David committed adultery and ultimately murder. Solomon, his son, even though he was the wisest man on earth, he slacked off spiritually in his life, and his wives turned his heart away from the Lord. Asa, he bailed on God at the end of his life, and even Hezekiah became proud at the end of his life, and was judged by God. Here's the lesson. Even the, quote, good people that we look at in this list, these names that we would point out and say these were the good people here, these were the faithful, even those people in Jesus' family tree need God's grace, just as we all do here this morning. So what if you can't really identify with the, quote, good people, the, the faithful ones? What if you identify more with those who need, let's say, an extra dose of God's grace? Well, then take note of the second type of people hanging from Jesus' family tree. Because God not only includes the faithful, he includes the failures in Jesus Christ's genealogy. Matthew makes no effort here, and I just love this about Matthew. After all, he was a tax collector, so he had no great reputation of himself as a tax collector, and he makes no effort to spruce up this tree. Now, I know you look at this tree, and you're like, wow, that's beautiful. And the ladies yesterday, they, they spent some time sprucing it up, making it look great here this morning. Matthew doesn't do that. He pulls out the Charlie Brown Christmas tree. He's not hiding the bare spots or the twisted twigs. These are... There are names in the genealogy of Jesus here that, to be honest with you, are quite shocking. 
But Matthew makes no attempt to hide them, to scrub them, to cancel them out. We don't have time to go through all the bad apples in this tree, so I'll just pick out a few. In verse 3, we see the name Judah. Now, Jacob had 12 sons, but for some reason, the lineage of our Lord, our king, ran through Judah. Now, this is very interesting because Judah was not the oldest son like Reuben was, nor was he necessarily the favorite son like Joseph or Benjamin. And yet the Bible tells us that the king of kings would come out of the tribe of Judah. Now, with such an honor, surely Judah must have been this godly guy, right? A guy who followed the Lord, did what was pleasing to God. Wrong. Judah's first step down the slippery slope of sin happened when he married a Canaanite woman. Their children became spiritually schizophrenic, and the older one is so wicked that the Lord just takes his life, wipes him off the face of the earth. This son was married to a woman named Tamar, who is also listed here in Jesus' family tree, leaving her now a widow and without children. And according to Israelite custom, his brother was to marry Tamar and give her children. But this brother refused to do so. So the Lord took his life. Judah promised his third son to Tamar, but he procrastinated in fulfilling his obligation. And Tamar realized that this wedding was never going to happen, so she took things into her own hands, and she somewhat manipulated the circumstances to make it happen. The story goes from bad to worse here at this point. Tamar hears her father-in-law Judah is going to take a trip, so she comes up with this evil plan. She disguises herself as a prostitute, waited alongside the road to entice Judah into sleeping with her. And Judah, being this very lustful person himself and not knowing it was his sister, his, uh, uh, it was her, offered to pay her a young goat for her services. Gave her a deposit of his signet ring, his cord, and his shepherd's staff, which was basically the ancient equivalent of a driver's license today. Security deposit, if you will. And of course, as you know, or you can probably imagine, Tamar becomes pregnant with twins, and when Judah finds out, he's ready to burn her in the fire because of the disgrace that she has now caused his family. And she is dragged away, Or as she's dragged away, Tamar finally identifies Judah as the father of twins by holding up his personal property. As you might imagine, Judah at this point is humiliated. And he admits in Genesis 38, 26, she is more righteous than I am. Now indeed, this story I just told you, no one looks good in this story. It reeks of deception. It reeks of prostitution and lust. And so whatever you can say about Judah, and it's not very good, you cannot by any stretch of the imagination make Tamar to look good. She's only less bad than her father-in-law. And so that's in Jesus' family tree. And then in verse 5, we find, in verse 5, you find Rahab. Most of us know her as Rahab the what? the harlot or the prostitute. She was the one who hid the spies in Jericho. Her most famous deed is her trade as a prostitute and telling a lie in order to protect the spies. You wouldn't think she would have much of a chance in getting in Jesus' family tree, but here she is. 
Is there anything good we can say about Rahab? Yes, she was a woman of faith nonetheless. And because of her faith, she is listed in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And then you find Bathsheba. And although she's not mentioned by name, in verse 6, she is called simply the wife of Uriah. And of course, the story of Bathsheba's adultery with King David is so well known that I won't even take time to repeat it here. Most of us are aware of it. We know it. Suffice it to say, adultery was only beginning of it all. Before the scandal was over, it included lying, it included this royal cover-up, and ultimately it included murder by David. And so there's dirt all over this episode, but don't miss the point. Bathsheba is still included in Jesus' family tree. As someone has said, we're reminded once again that God's plan of redemption came neither through perfect people nor for perfect people. Hallelujah. You find Rehoboam. This is a king who is listed in verse 7. He's the son of King Solomon. And because of his pride, because of his lust for power, he was responsible for dividing the kingdom. Dividing Israel into two kingdoms. And yet the Messiah comes through Rehoboam nonetheless. Verse 9 mentions Ahaz. Ahaz was this very ungodly king who worshipped pagan gods and eventually self-destructed. It was to King Ahaz that Isaiah made his prophecy of the promised Emmanuel that would be born to a virgin. And when he died, he was buried without honor. And yet Emmanuel traces his earthly family history back to Ahaz. And then you have his son, Manasseh, who is mentioned in verse 10. Manasseh reigned for 55 years, longer than any other king, but he was Judah's most wicked ruler. He was into idolatry, and if you can imagine this, he sacrificed his own son to the pagan god Molech. He worshipped the sun and the stars instead of the creator. He killed anyone who disagreed with him. In fact, 2 Kings 2.19 gives this sad summary of his life. It says, Manasseh led them astray so that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. Thankfully, after being deported to Babylon, he humbled himself. And he actually returned back to the Lord which means there is hope for any of us here who will humble ourselves and repent of our sin and return to the Lord. Hallelujah for that. It's amazing here when you read and you know a little bit about the history of these names mentioned in this genealogy because Jesus, although he comes from the right stock, it is still bad stock. He comes from a bunch of sinners. And yet these individuals who we would call failures, are included in Jesus' family tree, not for what they have in common with Christ, but for what they share in common with each of us here this morning. You see, we we are just like them in so many ways. But isn't that why Christ came? He came to, to save us from our sins. He came to be our king. Jesus can take our failures and turn them into something fruitful. That's why Jesus came. But third, Jesus, or God, not only includes the faithful and the failures, God also includes the forgotten in this genealogy. He includes those who feel like failures. He includes people with flaws. And he never forgets those who fear that they are forgotten. 
If you look again at this list, there are some names here that we don't know anything about. I mean, what about Hezron and Ram? Anybody heard of those guys? Abud, Azar, Akim, how about Zadok? We might not know them, but they are known in heaven. It's also remarkable that God also includes four women, five if you include Mary, which is highly unusual for any woman to be included in a Jewish genealogy. And yet God includes Tamar, he includes Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. It's almost as if Matthew wants us to know that Jesus came not just for males, but he also came for women too, who were often treated as second-class people in Roman times. Do you feel forgotten here this morning? Do you feel left out? Do you ever wonder if God even notices you in the midst of this world, this chaotic world that we live in? Don't despair. You are never out of the mind of our God. In fact, Psalm 139, 17 and 18 says, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. God takes what feeble faith we have. He couples it with our fears and our failures, and he redeems them for his glory. And in the process, he never forgets us. Now, while I'm grateful that God includes the failures, he includes the, the, the faithful and the forgotten in Jesus' family tree, it makes you wonder, why? Why would God include these types of people in the genealogy of Jesus Christ? After all, this is one crooked family tree. And yet, this is the family tree through which the Son of God stepped into the pages of human history. So why in the world would our God include these types of people in Jesus' genealogy? And I want to throw out to you, I would suggest there are three possible answers to this question. First of which is this, God did it to send a message to self-righteous people. He did it to send a message to self-righteous people. You see, Matthew was written especially for the Jewish people. And many of their leaders, who we would know as, as the scribes and the Pharisees, they were very self-righteous. They were judgmental towards others. They truly thought that, that they deserved, it was owed to them to be included in the kingdom of God. In other words, by birth, I should be included. And they flaunted it. What a shock then to read this genealogy and find that it is now filled with liars and murderers and thieves and adulterers and harlots instead of, well, good people like me. Because that's how most of the Jewish leaders thought of themselves. It's not a pretty picture. It's not a clean family tree. The people in Jesus' family tree is a stinging rebuke to that kind of judgmental self-righteousness. There's a second reason, I think, why God included these people. And God did it so that his grace might be displayed. In fact, richly displayed. Jesus was sent by a God of grace to be a king of grace. And the people God chose to be in Jesus' family tree reveals now the wonder of his grace. 
We don't know about every person in this genealogy, but of the ones we do know about, most of them had notable moral failures on their spiritual resumes. In other words, the best, the very best of these men and women, they had flaws. In fact, some were so flawed that it is impossible to see their good points. So how does this show the grace of God? It shows the grace of God because people like this make up Jesus' family tree. Listen, Jesus belonged to a family of murderers, a family of cheats and cowards, adulterers and liars. All the people listed were great sinners, and yet they were included in Jesus' family tree because of God's amazing grace. As David Turner writes, God's grace in Jesus the Messiah, it reaches beyond Israel to Gentiles beyond men to women, beyond the self-righteous to sinners. In saving his people from their sins, Jesus is not bound by race, gender, or scandal. And so you know what that makes? The hero of this genealogy is who? The hero is God. When you read the names in Jesus' family tree, you aren't supposed to focus on the sin, but on God's grace here. God's grace shines through the blackest of human sin as he chooses these flawed men and women and places them in Jesus' family tree. Praise God that he delights in saving immoral, sinful people by his sovereign grace because that includes us. But there's a third reason why God included people like this, and that is God did it so we would simply focus on Jesus Christ. So we would focus on the Son of God, the Savior, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. This is why Matthew begins with Jesus Christ in verse 1, the book of the genealogy of who? Jesus Christ. The first thing Matthew wants us to know is Jesus is the Savior. That is, he's the Messiah. He's the king who has come to save sinners from their sins. In fact, the name Jesus means Yahweh saves. In Christ, that name means Messiah or the anointed one. And it points to Jesus as God's anointed savior and king. And so Matthew is showing us something here, even by the name that he uses, Jesus Christ. He's showing us what Paul teaches us in 1 Timothy 1.15, it says the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, this is good news indeed, is it not? That Jesus came to save us from our sins. And so notice the good news from Jesus' genealogy. It means this, this morning, no matter who you are here today, no matter what you've done, Jesus came to save you from your sins and to be your king. Any sinners here today? Any sinners watching online? Any liars? Any cheaters here this morning? Any thieves? Any hypocrites? Listen, there's good news for all of us. No matter who you are or what you've done, Jesus came to save you from your sins. Just think about this. If a prostitute can be saved, you can be saved. 
If a murderer can be transformed, you can be transformed. If an adulterer can be saved, then there is hope for you. So no matter what your past looked like, no matter what your present may feel like, no matter where you've been or what you've done, God can give you a fresh start. That's the reason we celebrate Christmas. Jesus came, why? To save us from our sins and to be our king. Remember what the angel told Joseph in a dream about Mary? We'll look at this next Sunday. In Matthew chapter 1 here, verse 21, it says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will do what? He will save his people from their sins. So no matter if you've been fairly faithful, because nobody can be perfectly faithful, no matter if you find yourself a failure, no matter if you feel forgotten in this world of ours, there's good news from Jesus' genealogy. Jesus came to save you and to be your king. The question is, is he your savior? By faith, have you received Jesus Christ as your savior and king? And if you have, are you now living for him as your king? With him being your king, has that altered the way you now live your life? Because if he is truly your king, it should make a difference in how we live even now in this world until he comes again. With your heads bowed. And as we pray, and as we think about what we have heard and and what this genealogy speaks to us about, I would ask that you would search your heart and you would evaluate, is Jesus truly my Savior? Has he saved me from my sins through faith in him? And is he my king? Am I living for him? And if not, if you cannot answer that question, I encourage you to to open up your heart to Jesus Christ, to cry out to him, to repent of your sin, and by faith and prayer, ask God to save you and to forgive you, and to be your Savior and King. You can do that even now, right where you're seated. If you're watching online, we're right where you're watching, at home or wherever it may be. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus, who is exactly the Savior we need. He is a perfect rescuer for the great and the good, and for the lowest and the least. Help us, help all of us to see how badly we need him today. Thank you for loving us enough to send your son to be our savior and king. Give us the grace to bend our knee to King Jesus, to come and put our trust in him, to to turn from our self-reliance and our pride, and to cry out to him that we are lost and broken and guilty, and we need him to rescue us and to save us from our sins. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.